everyone and happy Sabbath. What a beautiful song, beautifully sung. And how fitting. We are talking about the heavenly sanctuary and the universal characteristics of worship and music. If you are here for the first time, in other words, if you weren't here last night, then I would uh, ask you to review that because we're going to switch gears majorly. We talked about the building blocks of what was termed cultural worship And uh, we looked at Jeroboam, we looked at some of the principles of uh, the Second Vatican Council, which took place between 1962 and 1965, and we looked at how those principles have really taken root, not only in Protestantism, but unfortunately in many parts of Adventism as well. So we're going to look at a much different foundation here this morning, because there is a ground in which we can understand these things, incorporate them into our lives, and thus experience the power that the Holy Spirit wants in our transformation and in our mission. And that is really the ultimate goal. We want to wrap this thing up and go home. And part of the building blocks of doing that, part of not short-circuiting this process, is making sure we understand the true ground of what worship is so that he can press the power button and so that our witness can be effectual. I just invite you to bow your heads as I pray. Dear gracious, loving, heavenly Father, Lord, our hearts long to worship you in spirit and in truth. One day very soon, this will wrap up, and I pray that each and every one of us will be among those that are on the sea of glass, praising your holy name. May we learn that song here and now, through all the vicissitudes of life, through all the challenges, the trials, the perplexities. May you place that song in our hearts, and may we sing, and may our worship always be acceptable to you. May your Holy Spirit be present. May he always be our teacher and our guide, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The heavenly sanctuary is the center of worship. We're going to examine four Four different time periods. We're going to look at four different time periods. We're going to look at before the creation of the earth. We're going to see that the heavenly sanctuary was central. We're going to see that the heavenly was uh, central throughout the Old Testament era, throughout the New Testament era, and also in heaven, and we will explore the implications of all that. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 17, and verse 12, as we look at the centrality of the heavenly sanctuary before the creation of the universe. Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 12. Jeremiah 17, verse 12. It says, A glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Now, there was, of course, the temple that everyone would resort to in Jeremiah's day. But notice he says, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. This was the place from which the angelic host would gather together and worship God. But Jeremiah is saying that during the existence of the earthly temple, it was also the place of our, meaning the Israelites that were gathering together to worship in Jeremiah's day. And so it is extremely central here, even before the creation of everything else. Once it was created, then it became the center because that was the place where God's presence was. So let's go through the heavenly sanctuary as the center of worship in the Old Testament era. And what we're going to do here is we're going to make a connection between the earthly temple and the heavenly, all right? Now, in Exodus chapter 25, verses 8 and 9, every good Adventist should know this, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And then in verse 9, it says, see that you make it according to the pattern which was showed you in the mount. The idea of an earthly sanctuary or an earthly temple didn't come from the surrounding nations. It didn't come from them. It was an act of revelation. The content came from God. To Moses. Now, God also chooses the place where he wanted his people to assemble anciently. So I'm going to go to the book of Deuteronomy now, chapter 12 and verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 12 
and verse 5. The Israelites just couldn't assemble in any place. We're here today on the Sabbath day. We didn't pick the time. God picked the time. And as we're about to find out, God picks the place. He picked the place back then where he wanted his people to gather. In verse 5, he says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation or his dwelling, you shall seek, and thither shalt thou come. So God chooses the place, and he says he wants to put his name there. That doesn't mean he's going to carve his initials somewhere in the earthly temple, what that, or the earthly sanctuary. What that means is that he's going to be present there. God's name is synonymous with his presence. And for homework, you can read 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, where you find his name and his presence actually being synonymous. So when he says, I'm going to put my name there, he's actually saying, I'm going to reveal myself there. I'm going to make myself present there there. So if you choose to go someplace else, uh, you might have an encounter, but it's not going to be with me because I told you to go here. Are you following? And uh, just for time, we will not read uh, Deuteronomy 16 because it basically says the same thing. So I want to go to the, instead of the earthly uh, sanctuary, the, the, uh, the one where they would transport from place to place, I want to go to 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 29. Because this is the permanent sanctuary here. So 1 Kings chapter 8, this is where Solomon is dedicating the temple. And so don't lose the bigger picture. We're trying to show that even during the Old Testament times, the place that they actually gathered was the heavenly. So as he's in the middle of this prayer of dedication, he says in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 29, he says that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day even toward the place of which thou hast my name shall be there. All right, so he's saying, I'm going to be present there. That you may hearken unto the prayer which your servant shall make toward this place. Now let's read verse 30. And hearken thou unto the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, hear thou in heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. Now notice that in verse 30. They're actually gathered around the earthly temple. Now of course God is present in the temple. If you read verse 12, he actually makes himself uh, known there and the priests have to you know, run out of the temple because his presence is being revealed there. So he's present in the earthly temple. But Solomon here is saying, when we gather around the earthly temple, I want you to hear, you would, you would think it was going to say, I want you to hear from where you're being present right here in the earthly temple. But he doesn't say that. He says, I want you to hear from heaven your dwelling place. Now, this occurs several times in this chapter. For instance, if you go down to, um, that would be verse uh, 39. We can go down to verse 39. It's mentioned in other places, but very clear here. In verse 39, it says, Then hear thou in heaven your dwelling place, and forgive. Then in verse 40, 43, hear thou in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calls you for. And then in verse 49, notice, then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven your dwelling place and maintain their cause. So as they are gathered around the earthly, they're actually pictured as they're gathering around the heavenly. I want to mention one more text in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 27. 2 Chronicles chapter 30 and verse 27. This is a reformation that took place in the days of Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles chapter 30 verse 27, it says, Then the priests, the Levites, arose and blessed the people, and their voice was heard, and their prayer came up to his holy dwelling place, even unto heaven. So when God's people are gathered around the earthly temple to worship God, they are pictured as ultimately gathering around the heavenly temple. Thus, the heavenly temple is the center of worship in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament era, God chose one place to manifest his presence. There's one God. And there's one sanctuary. There are not many sanctuaries. God didn't say, look, I'm going to meet with the Israelites here, and they're going to build me a sanctuary, and then I'm going to meet with the Edomites over there and build them a sanctuary, and so forth and so on. You know why? Because there's only one sanctuary in heaven. There's not many sanctuaries in heaven. 
There's just one sanctuary in heaven. And so that is typified by having one central location around which he wanted his people to come. Uh, he did not, again, choose a place for the Israelites and other places for other nations to worship God according to their culture. When Israel did that in the days of Jeroboam, the results were disastrous. The, we're not talking about cosmetic changes here. Let's move to the New Testament. And I actually want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And we're going to actually start in verse 18. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 18. It states, For you are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them any more. For they could not endure that which was, could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned or thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. Now, undoubtedly, he's describing God's people on Mount Sinai when God gave the law. And he's telling the New Testament Christians here today, uh, and in his day, when you are gathered around in a corporate manner to worship God, you are not actually coming to any earthly location. You're going to see the transition in verse 22. It states, But you are come unto Mount Zion and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel, see that you refuse not him that speaketh, and we can stop there. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you are located. It doesn't matter what culture you are of. When we all come together for worship, whether it was in the first century or the fifth or the 16th, or it doesn't really matter, when we come together to worship corporately, there is only one location that we are ultimately going to, and that is the heavenly temple. It is the one place. So even as we are gathered here this morning, we are actually pictured as if we're gathering around the heavenly, which means then there can be no earthly culture that can be the ground. That is crystal clear. So if you were here for last night's presentation, that kind of an approach is not going to work. You must choose to, to define the characteristics of worship after earthly individual cultures or after the heavenly sanctuary, which Scripture recognizes as the ground. That is the choice that needs to be made. That is a fork in the road. Those two approaches cannot be blended. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. This is an incredible worship scene that I believe is taking place right now. Now, we're going to find that in this worship scene, the throne is actually sent central. The word throne in Revelation is mentioned either 46 or 47 times. 19 of those references are in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. That gives some indication of the centrality of the throne in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And so I want to just read some of these passages for emphasis. In verse 1, after this, I looked... This is chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Verse 3. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne, in sight like unto an emerald. Verse 4. And round about the throne were 24 seats, and upon the seats I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. 
So in verse 4, there is a throne, and then the 24 elders are around the throne. In verse 5, out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6, and before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, or in other translations, four living creatures full of eyes before and behind. So what do we have now? We have a central throne with 24 elders surrounding the throne, and then these four living creatures which are around the throne. Notice what happens in verse 9. When those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, now we're going to go to chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Let's jump down to verse 6 of Revelation chapter 5. And I beheld and lo, in the midst of the throne and in the midst of the four beasts and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And then in verse 7 it says, And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. Let's jump to verse 11. What else is around the throne? It says, And I beheld and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne. And the beasts and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Now the circle grows even larger in verse 13. Notice, and every creature which is in heaven and on earth, in the case they missed a spot, they even looked under the earth and such as were in the sea and all that are in them heard I saying. Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The throne here is central, and everything is around it. The 24 elders are around the throne. The four living creatures are around the throne. The myriads of angels are around the throne. And every intelligence you can possibly think of in verse 13 is around the throne. This is a universal scene. You can't get much more universal than this. When Vatican II talked about universal, that was only the earth. When the Bible talks about universal, it combines all of heaven and all of earth together. Now you tell me what the ground is. If this is not a ground, I don't know what is. What are the implications of all this? This obviously connects heaven and earth together. Notice again in verse 6, it says that the seven spirits of God are sent forth into all the earth. What are they sent forth to do? I remember asking myself that question when I read the text. Okay, what are they supposed to do? Well, obviously it was the spirit, it says in verse 2, that uh, John was in. When he was in the spirit, he sees a throne. So the Holy Spirit and the sanctuary here are conjoined together. And so the, the job of the Holy Spirit is to direct our attention to what is actually taking place up there. And when we can contemplate what is taking place up there, when we begin to understand what is taking place up there, not just in terms of salvation and sanctification and growth, which is what the sanctuary is usually associated with, but also with how we should worship God. When we begin to contemplate that, then we should begin to emulate that down here. That's the ground. All right? I mean, if I want to be an earthly entertainer, I mean, I'm in Arkansas. You know, the, the, the biggest town in Arkansas is Little Rock. And uh, there was a student once that was getting his driver's license. And I said, hey, you know, so how did the parallel parking go? And he said, uh, Pastor, where, on, where in Arkansas do you have to parallel park? I said, yeah, you know, that's a good point. Uh, <laughs> Uh, that's a good point. I mean, there's no place in Arkansas where I can learn to be an entertainer. I mean, if I want to be an entertainer, I'm going to go to New York or L.A. Said, Those are the centers. If I want to know how to worship God, I'm not going to go to any earthly culture. I'm going to go to heaven's culture. That's what this is describing. That is the ground. So there are massive implications for this. Worship practices, and including music here, 
are not grounded in individual earthly cultures, but heaven's culture, which includes the combined worshipers of heaven and earth. Notice there's only one worship service here that, can, that includes the combined inhabitants of heaven and earth. There are not contradictory worship services for different cultures. So it's not like we walk up to the pearly gates, oh, you're Greek. Okay, yeah, you can go over there. Oh, you're Asian. Oh, yeah, your worship is over there. Oh, you're African. Oh, yeah, yeah, your worship is over there. Is that what you see? I don't see that here. I don't see that here. So then why are we not doing this? Have we forgotten what has brought us into existence as Seventh-day Adventists? Why does the Adventist church begin with Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed? Why with that? Because the sanctuary plays a, a, a hermeneutical role. The sanctuary plays an interpretive role. It interprets all the things that are interconnected with it. And we're just focusing here on worship and music. So what is, the, what is the purpose and function of the heavenly sanctuary? Well, as the ultimate place where worshipers gather, uh, uh, I'm sorry, as the ultimate place where worshipers around the throne, uh, around the universe gather, it functions as the authoritative prototype and model of what worship looks like. It gives us a window into heavenly realities by properly interpreting them, which includes also the nature of music. It unites heaven and earth together. Thus, what is revealed there has universal application. The work of the Holy Spirit is to reveal the nature of the heavenly scenes that we on earth should seek to emulate in our worship. We read that in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. Now, in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, the word pattern there, see that you make all things according to the pattern showed you in the mount, is actually the word model. And we're going to explore the implications of this in just a moment. Models are intricately related to the realities that they represent. Models are scaled down versions of the realities that they represent. When John saw this in heaven, he saw and heard the real thing. Yet in his description, he was restricted to using language that corresponds to what we know so that we can get a glimpse in what, into what we have never seen or heard. When we compare two things, they are either completely identical. Now, that's not the case when you compare the heavenly and the earthly temples. They are not completely identical. All right? We're not talking about, although it is real. They're not completely identical, and they're not completely dissimilar because then language would mean nothing. And this is all an allegorical presentation, and this is the view that those that have other presuppositions that come from the Greeks, which is where, you know, my, my people did a lot of damage, and so I'm seeking to undo that here. All right? So if you're, if you're captivated by the Greek view, then when you read Revelation, then that's just basically got John's cultural understanding of a worship event. It's not really real. Okay? It's just allegorical. All right? So I'm, I'm seeking to shed all that stuff. All right? I'm seeking to, you know what? When John saw it, I believe that's what he saw. And he saw the real thing. But the real, well, let's go to the next one. There are some things that are similar and some things that are not. Okay. How many of you can tell me, I always, yeah, don't read the, what's on the hood of the car. What kind of car is that? Every, in every congregation, there's, uh, you can't convince me that there's no car guys in here. Come on. You know what car that is. <laughs> Many people can name the year as well. 1957 Chevy. Okay. Now, I'm going to ask some really dumb questions. Is that a horse? Now... Again, I want to toy with this for a little bit so that we really kind of grasp this. Um, is that an airplane? Okay, it's not. Is it a train? No. Okay. It's a car, right? Let's say, I don't know, let's say you guys, you know, once you leave medical school, you're going to go to the Amazon, all right? And you're going to meet a group of people, 
that have had no connection with the outside world whatsoever. And you tell them that I can travel 60 miles in an hour. Their minds are just blown to smithereens. How, how, how do you do that, man? And then you begin to describe the car. Well, it's got an electrical system and an engine combustion system and a braking system and all that. And everything you're saying is going, yeah, because they got no way to put this together. But if you show them one of these and you say, you know what? It looks like this, but it's a lot bigger and we can get in it and it goes. It's still difficult, but they can grasp it. And if they were all of a sudden transported to Loma Linda and they look outside and they'll say, that's a car. Why? Because they've seen the model. They'll never mistake it for anything else. Now, it's not in one-to-one -one relationship with the real car. The real car is made up of different parts. This is just wood up there. The real car has an actual engine. That doesn't have an engine. The real car has the braking system. That doesn't have the braking system, and so forth and so on. But no one would say, just because the real has more, that there's no relationship to the less. That is the point you need to understand. So is the heavenly sanctuary real? It's absolutely real. But is there more to it than is portrayed in the earthly? Absolutely. But the more doesn't contradict what was revealed in the less. That means when we think about worship music, we ought to explore what has been revealed to us and then look at the implications. Does that make sense? So same with the plan of salvation. There are two focal points. There's the altar of burnt offering, and then there's what happened on the, uh, in the most holy place. All that has massive implications for justification and sanctification and everything to do with salvation. And if you throw that out, you're going to have a different view of salvation. If you think that this is just a culturally conditioned presentation, and this is just John's cultural view of what took place, well, sure, then earthly systems are going to become the ground for how you construct your doctrine of worship. And it will all be contradictory. That's what will take place. All right, so let's further look at the implications here. Just as there's a relationship between earthly structures and the heavenly, so there's a relationship between, we'll get to this, the earthly harp and the heavenly harp. By the way, there's only one instrument that has been chosen in heaven, and that is the harp. We're going to explore the implications of that. That doesn't mean that just having a harp, you know, you just have to duplicate having a harp. You have to explore why was this thing chosen? How, what is its nature? How does it function? What does it reveal about a philosophy of music? So we're going to look at the heavenly sanctuary and the universal characteristics of worship and music. But before we get to the music part, last night we discussed that in a, a Roman Catholic worship service, it is not the word that has been central for centuries in a Roman Catholic worship service. It is the Eucharist. It is the Mass that is central. And that took place for many centuries. When the Protestant church came along, Protestantism came along, it switched to Scripture being central. And, when, and in the charismatic movement and the emerging church movement, it is music that is synonymous with the presence of God. And that, ha and that is central. What do we see in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 as being central? All right? Well, there are many things that we read about in Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and I want to take you back there for a moment because I don't think it's that hard to figure out. There is one thing that really had John's attention. I'm sure he was fascinated by all the bells and whistles that he saw and heard up in heaven with the music and all that, but he really wanted to know what was in that scroll. So in chapter 5, verse 1, it says, I saw on the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open, to read the book, neither to look thereon. So notice where his attention is. He wants to know, look, he's in the presence of God. God is there, but he wants to know what's in that scroll. In the great controversy, there are issues that are so massive, John can't figure them out, but somehow the answers are in that scroll, and he wants to know. 
So the focal point is the unrolling of that scroll. Now notice when the lamb comes in verse 7, and he, took, and he took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. In verse 8, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And then it says, they sung a new song. And that song swelled to, to every person that was in the universe. So that lets you know that the focal point of that worship service there was the unrolling of that scroll. It was the proclamation of the word, and that's what continues to take place in the other aspects of the book of Revelation. So even though God is present, it is the unrolling of the scroll that has the attention of the universe. Why? Because that provides ultimate answers and meaning in this whole great controversy. So it should be the word and the proclamation of the word that should occupy the central position down here as well. So, what is music? How does it relate to worship? We looked at this a little bit last night. Music is made up of tone, which includes pitch, timbre. Uh, timbre is the specific sound. An A on the piano sounds different than an A on a guitar or an A on a trombone. Loudness, that's self-explanatory, and duration. There are also musical patterns like melody, harmony, rhythm, tempo, compositional structure, but there's something else, and that is mathematics. This great discovery by Pythagoras was later confirmed in the 18th century through the discovery of the overtone series. How many of you have heard of the overtone series before? All right, a few hands going up. Uh, I won't say how many of you have not heard of it. We're going we're gonna to try to explain the implications of that in just, just a moment, which means I've got to go to the piano, and uh, I'm not a pianist, but I'll, I'll try to make it work. And so music is composed of tone, musical patterns, and mathematics. You can't have music without all of those components together. Now, we're going to explore here the, uh, the implications of some of the symbols that have been revealed to us in the sanctuary, and we're going to kind of mess around with them just to see how, what the implications of that might be. So the symbols that are presented to us point to spiritual realities. Now, on the altar lambs were placed and rams were placed there. Why did God pick a lamb? Why not maybe like an orangutan? Do you think that when you take that orangutan and say, hey, buddy, we're going to be going over here and I'm going to take this knife and slit it through your throat, you think that orangutan is going to go down quietly? No, it ain't going to do that. I'm sorry, it is not going to do that. It is not going to do that. But did that lamb offer any resistance when it went down? No resistance whatsoever. So the symbol chosen tells you something about the reality to which it points. And Jesus didn't offer any resistance either. So you can't mess around with the symbol. Because if you mess around with the symbol, you mess around with the reality to which it points. So what did they, what did they put in the laver? They put, they put water. Now, I don't think orange juice or motor oil is a very good cleansing agent for the human body. All right? Again, if you mess around with the symbol that is chosen, you mess around with its function and with its purpose. The choirs were accompanied by strings. That's even in the Old Testament. 1 Chronicles 15, 16, 16, 4, and 5, and the rest of those verses. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, it is the harp that is the accompanying instrument that is chosen. So I'm sure that the heavenly harp doesn't quite look in all respects like the earthly harp. But I tell you what, if you and I were transported to heaven and we know what an earthly harp looks like, do you think we're not going to recognize a heavenly harp? Of course we're going to recognize it. If, if we know what the table of showbread looks like, and we go to heaven. Do you think we're not going to recognize the heavenly table of showbread? Just because it looks different? No, we're going to recognize it. It's like, okay, that's the, yeah, it doesn't quite look like that, but that's the table of showbread. That's for sure. And so forth and so on. 
So if we mess around with the symbol, we mess around with the implications and the nature and purpose and function that that symbol was designed to communicate. Now, even during the Old Testament times, the choice of musical instruments was a divine arrangement. And I want you to turn with me actually to 2 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 25. We're also going to read verse 27. 2 Chronicles chapter 29... We're going to read verse 25, and then we're going to read verse 27. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 25. And he, this is referring to Hezekiah, set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David, and of Gad the king's seer, and Nathan the prophet, for so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets." So obviously this was in a, a divine arrangement. Now, let's, uh, we'll read verse 26. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. And Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. Notice what is front and center in verse 27. It is not the music. It says, when the burnt offering began, because that typified the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. This was an actual, uh, when we read Hebrews verse, uh, 12 verse 24, it says, you're come to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. All the rituals that the priests performed in the Old Testament is a mode of speech. It's a mode of communication. And so when that, when that sacrifice was placed on that altar, it was communicating that Jesus would die for our sins. It was communicating that one would come that would take our place. That was the message that was being preached. The, the author of Hebrews, Paul, says that that is a mode of communication. So this is what is front and center. And when that begins to take place, it says, then the song of the Lord began. So the music is in a supportive role to what is central there. That's what that is indicating. The most important role of music is to proclaim and remember God's name, 1 Chronicles 16.4, and all of his actions. And this embraced the entire earth. Music's subordinate function to the sacrifice was communicated spatially by the singer's location at the east end of the altar. You find that in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 12. It is the altar that is central, and the singers were at the east part of the altar. And they were also noted as before the altar, which means the altar is central. The most important part is to communicate the name of God with, the, with words that must be clearly heard. You know, there was another worship service at the Golden Calf. You remember that Joshua was up on the mountain with Moses, so he wasn't actually seeing what was taking place down below. And, um, and he says to Moses, look, I think there's a noise of war in the camp. All right? So he's not seeing what's going on. So he's hearing the music, and Moses says, well, it's not the voice of those that are in battle. It's the voice of those that sing, do I hear? And so, uh, which means that Joshua is hearing stuff, but he can't make out the words. And Moses says, well, they're actually singing. So they were singing on the ground. Joshua was up there. Joshua heard it, but he couldn't make the words out. So what was prominent? Obviously not the words. It was the music. Now, if it sounds like the noise of war, and you have to choose between rhythm, melody, and harmony, I don't think it's the melody that was primary. I don't think it's the harmony that was primary because you don't have, it's the rhythms. I mean, that's what makes things, I mean, I used to be a jazz rock drummer. I know how to get people to, to dance, and I know how to make stuff chaotic. And if I don't know how to do that, then I shouldn't be wasting my time on that drum set. That's what I was told. And so I learned how to do that. If you have a different opinion, I've never heard of anyone that had a different opinion on this, but you may be the first. <laughs> if, you want to create the, if you want to create a battle scene, it's not going to be harmony. In and of itself, it just won't do it. What is it that rouses people? You know, you're just like, no, nah, it's, it's those rhythms, man. It's those rhythms that gets them going. 
Now in Revelation, John, in Revelation chapter 5, John hears the music, but you know what he also hears? Notice, Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. They sung a new song saying, those are the words. Uh-huh. And he, and he learned the words so well that he could actually write them down for us. So the music is in a supportive role there. So John clearly hears the words that are being sung. The music in Revelation, uh, in Revelation 5 draws attention to the Lamb and to his achievements. Now, what emotions are going on here, okay? So first, John is depressed. I mean, he's weeping. And then all of a sudden, the lamb comes. And then they sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the book to open the seals thereof. For you were slain and has redeemed us to God by your blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And then there's many angels that join in. Notice the words in verse 12. What emotions come to your mind when I read this? Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. I mean triumph. This is a triumphant scene. There's no doubt about it. And the music is there to add to that. Music communicates emotions. That's what it does. But in all other systems that I have analyzed, it actually communicates the divine presence, which is then a form of idolatry. So God is not in, God is not in the musical waves in the physics, okay? He's not there, all right? But in the, uh, in the systems that we talked about last night, that's the case, all right? So music communicates emotions. That's what it is designed to do. So let's explore some of the, uh, the implications of strings and the overtone series. The overtone series was first described at the beginning of the 18th century. It gives much new insight into the Pythagorean principles of consonance. That's when, that's when things sound agreeable and dissonance when they sound disagreeable. And it greatly extends our capacities for acoustical analysis. It has been described as a kind of periodic table, but of musical tones instead of chemical elements. Hence, like the periodic table of chemical elements, the overtone series is a part of creation's order, given, enduring, and constant. That's in Albert Blackwell's book, The Sacred in Music, pages 55 and 56. Now, everything creates overtones, and there are two broad categories of overtones. There are non-harmonic overtones, such as if I clap right now. Wow, this place is dead. Wow. Uh, but usually, it's like, ting, you'll hear, you know, bouncing all over the place. So everything produces overtones. Um, so if I strike something, that's, that's an example of non-harmonic overtones. These are produced by bells, cymbals, and other percussive instruments. These overtones are non-regular, non-harmonic, and often extremely complex to graph out. Cultures that primarily employ these as accompanying instruments produce melodic music consisting in transient tones that sound successively, as is the case with many folk musics of the world. So in this, you know, their melody is, is, basically, is basically primary here. In other words, they, they do not have a harmonic tradition, is what it's saying. Because the choice of the instruments they are using do not lend themselves to a harmonic tradition. And that's intrinsic to the instrument. Periodic or harmonic overtones are produced by strings, keyboard, brass, and woodwind instruments of a symphony orchestra. So I'm going to try to demonstrate this uh, on the piano right here. And so um, you have what's called the octave. And I'll see if I can do this. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, how many tones do you hear? I'm just going to press one here right now and see how this works. very faint, but maybe I didn't do it right. Okay. Can you hear that? All right. So you're clearly hearing the octave vibrating here. 
And that vibrates at twice the amount of speed this does than this does. Now I could depress any other note and it's not going to, it's not going to do that. This is something that's intrinsic to physics and nature. Now the, the very next one that vibrates is, well, we'll see if you can see if you can hear it. Oh yeah, I hear it clear as a bell. Yeah. So you hear the perfect fifth, and the and that is in a two-thirds relationship. Then we go like this. Yeah. You can even hear that. All right. And then you go to uh, this one. This one may be a little harder. Let's see. Oh, yeah. I heard it. All right. Now, what does this tell us? The phenomenon of physics tells us that the major chord was not invented by any culture. When I play this low C down here... You're not just hearing that low C. You're hearing all the way up to the overtone series, okay? That's what you're actually hearing, which is why pianists love a piano and they don't love a keyboard. I mean, you ask any pianist, I mean, is there no, there's no piano there? Oh, forget it, you know. They just, they don't even want to accompany. Why? Because the richness that this produces, it produces so much more overtones. That is a phenomenon of physics. So no earthly culture, you have, so physics informs us that the major chord is the most consonant chord and consonant sound. This is, the, this is actually the building block of all harmonic music. And that was suggested by the physics, all right? It wasn't suggested by a group of Europeans. They grasp this because, hey, have you ever heard those guys on YouTube? Like those singers that can sing like a really no note? And they can actually sing, and you will actually hear overtones in what they're singing. You can go to some places where the monks sing, and they'll be droning out this, you know, this low C, and all of a sudden you will hear all the stuff that's in the overtone series. So when the harp is chosen, that tells you a little something about the philosophy of heavenly music. If the symbol means anything at all, look, this is either John's culturally, cultural description of something that never took place in reality, which is the systems we talked about yesterday, or it's real. And if it's real, what are the implications then? Well, Blackwell moves on. Cultures that use instruments that produce Periodic vibrations, such as strings, tend to produce music that is predominantly harmonic, consisting of sustained tones that sound simultaneously in chords, as is the case with most music deriving from the post-medieval European culture. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that everything, you know, everything that comes out of the European culture is stamped with the gospel, nor anything that comes out of any other culture should immediately be discarded, okay? We're just, we're just saying, look, th this, is a this is a paradigm that's being revealed not from any earthly culture. Look, the heavenly sanctuary is not northern, it's not southern, it's not eastern, it's not western, it's not Asian, it's not African, it's not Canadian, it's not Greek. Are you getting it? Okay? This is where it's coming from. So we either got to ditch it or accept it. This is where we're at. So the choice of strings produces melodic music that is grounded in harmony. What are some other principles there from Revelation chapters 4 and 5? Now you do, have, you do have leaders up there that are leading, like the four living creatures and the 24 elders. And in, in chapter 4, it's a little smaller setting. And they go ahead and take the lead, and they sing, and they have special music, and everything is great. But in chapter 5, the singing is more congregational and universal. Like all the myriads of angels join in, and then every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth, they join in as well. So guess what? Luther didn't invent congregational worship. It has been going on a long time. Not here, but up there, okay? So that is the pattern. You have the words that carry the strong melodic line, and that's easily heard by John. Harmony is revealed by the choice of the harp. 
Harmony is also suggested by the fact that John heard the voice of many angels round about the, phone, the, the throne saying with a loud voice. All right, so um, I doubt they just sang in unison. When the instrument of choice reveals the fact that harmonies are possible. Now, I haven't been up there, so I don't know. All right. The music plays a supportive role in accompanying the words sung. The characteristics of the music are melody grounded in harmony. This observation is not derived from any particular human culture, but the, from the harmonic overtones that come from strings. Listen, if earthly strings produce overtones and there's a heavenly harp, well, that must produce overtones as well, but not in a one-to-one -one relationship with it. So who knows, like what... I mean, if we were transported to heaven, yeah, what human mind could possibly have conceived some of the music that's happening up there? One day, we hope to find out very soon. So the ground for this kind of music that is being described is melody grounded in harmony, and this is universal. Now, the spirit of prophecy agrees. Notice, music can be a great power for good. Yet we do not make the most of this branch of worship. The singing is generally done from impulse or to meet special cases. And at other times, those who sing are left to blunder along and the music loses its proper effect upon the minds of those present. Music should have, she mentions three qualities, beauty, pathos, and power. Believe it or not, that's a very strong philosophical statement. She doesn't say music carries the presence of God, which is what the other systems would say that we discussed last night. That makes Ellen White a philosopher. And maybe you haven't thought of it that way, but that's actually what it is. It's a philosophical statement. Because the other philosophers of worship and music are diametrically opposed to that. So that means she's got a, she's got a different view. Let the voices be lifted in songs of praise and devotion. Call to your aid, if practicable, instrumental music, and let the glorious harmony ascend to God an acceptable offering. This is from the voice and speech and song. She says, great improvement can be made in singing. Some think that the louder they sing, the more music they make, but noise is not music. Good singing is like the music of the birds, subdued and, notice, melodious. Voice and speech and song, page 415. I have been shown the order, the perfect order of heaven, and have been enraptured as I listen to the perfect music there. After coming out of vision, the singing here has sounded very harsh and discordant. I have seen companies of angels who stood in a hollow square, everyone having a harp of gold. At the end of the harp was an instrument to turn, to set the harp, or to change the tunes. Their fingers did not sweep over the strings, plural, carelessly, but they touched different strings to produce different sounds. That sounds like a layman's description of harmony. There is one angel who always leads, who first touches the harp and strikes the note. Then all join in the rich, perfect music of heaven. It cannot be described. It is melody, heavenly, divine, while from every countenance beams the image of Jesus, shining with glory unspeakable. That's in Testimonies, Volume 1, 146, Voice and Speech and Song, 427. Let those men and women who are satisfied with their dwarfed, crippled condition and divine things be suddenly transported to heaven and for an instant witness the high, the holy state of perfection that ever abides there. Every soul filled with love, every countenance beaming with joy, enchanting music, notice, in melodious strains. So you got one melody going here. And that's complemented by another one that is joining it. And then another one. And then another one. I think of Bach when I hear that. You know, it's like, he's like the master genius when it comes to that. And when I got to the third year of music theory at York University in Toronto, I hit the wall. Now, there's some drummers that are good musicians. I just wasn't one of them. And so when they began to analyze Bach fugues, I mean, I just had to just throw the towel in. I'm just like, I have reached my limit. <laughs> I cannot do this. And that's when the Lord stepped in and said, we got to turn this guy around. And then I gave my heart to the Lord after that. And I tell you what, it's been an amazing experience. Now, I wished that I could sing. When I grew up, I grew up in a very musical family. Or we had a very musical family. And when the kids were young, they knew how to sing. And when I would try to join in, they would say, Dad, 
You know, they would kind of look at you like, like, like dad, you know. And I tell you what, it took me 25 years of, of, of family worship just to be able to sing the bass line. That shows you the learning curve. Not very sharp, is it? <laughs> okay. What was I doing in music? Anyway. So, um, yes, melodious strains. Yeah, it took me 30 years just to be able to sing the bass part. That's from like singing all the time and all the time. But I, I, just, I just didn't have it. You know what? But when our plans fail, God's plans for us succeed. I just got a, an email. I, my doctoral dissertation was on the presence of God in corporate worship. And so, like you guys, I mean, when you finish from this place, that's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, you know. And producing one of these was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And I thought, Lord, I would love to have this published, but in some, you know, academic press, but that's just like, that's just for the very elite and so I just kind of buried it. And then I got an email like two days ago stating that we looked over your, and uh, we want you to submit a prospectus so that we can have this thing published. And I'm like, what in the world? So now I still can't do music, but I can talk about it. So uh, I dreamed once of doing music all over the world. But you know what? I would have been on like one of those shows, like, you know, those reality shows where you got to sing. And, you know, there's some people that people have told them you can sing. And then they go to what? Like America's Got Talent. And two seconds, of, two seconds comes out of their mouth and Simon's like, you know, that's all it takes. All right. That's all it takes. And so, I, you know, I, I mean, I just didn't have that, you know, and, and it's okay because, uh, um, you know, I'd rather God tell me the truth about what I can do and what I can't do because he's got a, he's got a plan for you that's much better than your own. And so um, if something has ever failed for you, then, you know, just take heart. God has a better plan for you, and he'll make it work in his time and in his way. Notice again, this is talking about Satan. The influence of the holy angels seemed for a time to carry him with them. As songs of praise ascended in melodious strains, swelled by thousands of glad voices, notice the effect on him. The spirit of evil seemed vanquished. Unutterable love thrilled his entire being. Hmm. So when this kind of music was played, the spirit of evil seemed vanquished. There's a story in the Bible about that, is there not? Like King Saul. So if you use a different kind of music, perhaps it might invite a different kind of spirit. It says, Then was the melody of heaven heard by mortal ears, and the heavenly choir swept back to heaven as they closed their ever memorable anthem. Now, the second half of my dissertation is an explanation of these few sentences. Music forms a part of God's worship in the courts above. And we should endeavor in our songs of praise to approach as nearly as possible to the harmony of the heavenly choirs. The proper training of the voice is an important feature in education and should not be neglected. Notice she never said they were really rocking the place up there, let me tell you. So she either saw what was real, or this is just a figment of her entire imagination. You choose. Well, friends, God wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. Worship is just one part of things. When our worship is correct, there will be mission. Because God will be pressing the power button, and we will be becoming transformed, and hearts will be falling on the rock and being broken. And we will see who we are and what we've done to Christ. And we will long to be more like him. You read about what happened in the book of Acts. Amazing things happened. You read about what happened in early Adventist history. I mean, thieves and drunkards and stuff. They would come to the tent and those boys would come out transformed. I mean, the fear of God was in those boys. And they would be changed. And I'm saying, where is that happening? Why is that not happening among us? 
Yes, there are many variables to this. And I'm just focusing on one here for a moment. But all, all that you need for a short circuit is for one thing to go out, not many things. So I'm just focusing on one thing. If the Holy Spirit is sent out into the earth, he's sent out to do something. He's sent out to, to draw our attention to what is happening up there. So that this might not be a part of the short-circuiting process. Because God wants us to come home. When I was up at Heartland, boy, did I miss my kids. I was like, man, weekend after weekend after weekend. I'm like, I just want to see my kids. And I thought, wow, what a little window into what God wants. He wants you and he wants me. But he can't take us the way we are. He's not going to bring sin up to heaven. Part of that transformation happens in the worship service. Part of the reason it isn't happening is because maybe we're not following the model that he's giving to us. And so he can't press the power button. I know I've given you a lot to think about. And my hope and prayer is that we might wrestle with God to learn to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We thank you so much for giving us Jesus. We thank you that every good and perfect gift comes from him. We thank you for worship. We thank you for music. Teach us, educate us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Put that song in our heart here and now so that we can learn to sing it before your throne. One day soon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.